What's up, everyone? Welcome to Breaking the Grid. This is our first episode. This is the podcast where we talk about off-grid living, self-sufficiency, and a life without society. So if you're curious about what off-grid living is like, what that even means, or if you're just looking for an educational source to guide you to living off-grid as well, um, that's kind of what we're all about. We have co-hosts, Dan the Man, and other co-hosts, Julia. You forgot the word for co-host. Huh? You forgot the term for co-host. <laughs> yeah. We have this guy and me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but today's episode is just an introductory episode where you guys get to meet us, get to know who we are, what we're all about, and what we have to offer. My name is Julia. I'm a beginner homesteader, so I don't have that much to offer. If anything, I, I relate closer to you guys than I do with Dan. I've only been self-sufficient for about a year and a half or so. I just I had just finished college, actually, and I, I actually... I still had a semester left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I still had a semester left when when the pandemic happened. Yeah, um, in and March. Kind of forced to become self sufficient in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it, like like most people. I mean, like a lot of people. I think. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I think the pandemic was a wake up call for a lot, a lot of people. I mean, I'll never forget it. March twenty twenty. That's like forever. That day is forever ingrained in my mind. Uh, as I'm sure. Uh, it is for a lot of you guys, too. That really launched me into the field of questioning what I would do when the world ends and when society collapses. And a few months later, I moved from California to the middle of nowhere in Texas, <laughs> from the city to the country to learn how to live a much more self-sufficient life. That's a little bit about me. We have Dan the Man. He is way more qualified than I am. Um, he's actually one of the foremost experts in the field of off-grid living. So he is someone with a lot of credentials and accomplishments to his name. So today, so today's episode will rely heavily on his story. I mean, his story is one of the most, his life journey is one of the most interesting life journeys i've ever heard it's almost hollywood quality it's partially is hollywood quality i mean yeah. i worked on i consulted for shows like the walking dead doomsday preppers falling skies um the colony mm -hmm. and then hollywood movies like the road and the book of eli yeah so it, it went from like hollywood to hollywood yeah exactly yeah, so he, he's got a lot of experience under his belt. So I'm going to let you tell the audience why they should listen to you. So can you describe yourself in one word? Um, how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> um, I don't have an idea. It's just insanity. I just crazy it's just uh, eccentric You're insane. <laughs> yeah I, you have to be to go through everything i did and do everything we did yeah um so yeah crazy yeah yeah no i i mean just your early childhood life i think was already insane to begin with you and i we kind of are cut from the same cloth in terms of uh the environment that we grew up with in when we were younger you had a whole different journey though because you were a lot more involved with with your community i guess um because you were born in detroit, detroit. 
Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I kind of came out just trying to survive. Mm. It was the, at the time in the early, I mean, late seventies, early eighties, it was the homicide capital of the world. They had more homicides, more killings than Iraq or war zones that were going on. So yeah, I just kind of came out surviving and just to make, to explain that survival and self-sufficiency are very, very different things. Yeah. I'm not in any way, shape or form a survival expert. Don't know much about going in the woods and starting a fire by rubbing sticks together. That's not what self-sufficiency is. Mm -hmm. um, self-sufficiency is living extremely comfortable outside of society. So, right. so when we did it, um, I had a swimming pool inside my bedroom. Um, we, we were making margaritas out of uh, strawberry and alcohol that we made ourselves. Right. And he means, um, so Dan lived off grid. Right. Completely cut off from society and the outside world for seven years. And that's what he means by he's the foremost expert in self-sufficiency. Yeah, not survival. Right. But, yeah, coming out and living in Detroit, growing up my teenage years in Detroit, we saw a lot of killings. We saw dead people. Uh, I remember the first time I saw a dead guy. He was in, in an alley, um, had been stabbed a bunch of times, and he was mm. just laying there. You could tell he was dead. And the crazy part of that is that guy sat in that alley for days, four or five, six days, and nobody, either nobody called the cops or the cops never came and nobody did anything with it. We passed it every day going to the mall. And... Yeah, I can't imagine what that, seeing that does to a child, you know, yeah. what it does to your psyche and your mentality. So it, it kind of got me in the mood for um, surviving. Right, it was survival since birth. Yeah, surviving, counting on my own self. And... Right. Yeah, I had a very similar background to your childhood. My parents are, uh, they were refugees of the Vietnam War. So they came here not knowing anything and living in the poorest areas that they can afford and working always constantly. We grew up in a neighborhood full of gang violence and drugs. And I wasn't as involved with that as you were. Uh, my parents, even though they were a little bit, they weren't always there. They made sure that we didn't get ourselves in trouble. So there's that. I remember being in high school. My high school was called Luther Burbank, but they called it Luther Blood Bank because of all the fights and gang oh. violence that happened there. And I remember, uh, I think I was a sophomore in high school. Um, oh, and there was this kid in my sixth period algebra class. Uh, we'll call him T, but T was really quiet. And he kept himself a lot, but he was still very sociable. He had a lot of friends and a lot of people liked him and I liked him. He was a really good kid. And one day he just stopped showing up. I'm sure that's a common thing with your stories too, is he, he just, he just stopped showing up and he sat right behind me and I didn't know where he went. He was missing for a week or so. And then finally his friends in the classroom started talking and they told me that he had gotten shot in a drive-by. He, he was not part of a gang. He just so happened to be in the wrong area at the wrong time. He passed. And that was a very common occurrence that happened in my high school. People go to jail because they got in trouble or they were expelled because they were fighting too much or they got pregnant and couldn't come to school anymore or they dropped out or they died. So there, a lot of that was um, part of my childhood, too. Yeah, uh, there was 15 of us growing up, 15 close friends. Um, and since we were in middle school or something, 
and um, just two of us got out of Detroit alive. Um, That's not a good survival rate. Yeah, my friend Porter, who's in California, and me. It used to, I used to tell the story and say that there was three three of us that got out alive. That our third friend was in prison, but he got killed in prison a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So, oh my goodness, there was that stat too. Gosh, yeah, that, it, it's. Uh, I mean, you see it on TV and stuff, and you don't really understand what it's like until you not only go there but live there. And yeah, so yeah, that was Detroit. Wow, that is insane. So this is kind of where our stories part. <laughs> Drastically. You, very drastically. You um, left the city at a very early age, at the age of 15, mm-hmm. to go live with your father. So you left your mom, who yeah. was still in Michigan. You left her and went to Utah to live with your father in the mountains. Way up in the mountains, yeah. Right, Rocky I, Mountains. I didn't leave of my own free will. My mother pretty much said, if you're going to stay alive, you need to go live with your dad. Oh, man. So the situation got that bad. Yeah. And I was really heavy into Into that lifestyle. And and gang stuff. And so I uh, moved away up in the Rocky Mountains. It was a different type of survival. It was hunting and trapping and fishing, learning all those things. Yeah. Did all the survival skills you learned in Detroit, did that translate to you? Not (laughs) much. No. There weren't not a single gang member in Maybe in the whole state of Utah, <laughs> but definitely not where we lived. There was bears and elk and mountain lions. and Wow. So you had to learn a whole new skill set of yeah. surviving when you were living in the mountains. Yeah, quickly. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so how many years were you there in Utah? Uh, just a few. I was there my early high school years, freshman, sophomore, maybe part of my, my uh, third year. And then we... Uh, he moved us. My dad got transferred, and we moved to Texas. So yeah, three years I think of learning how to rebuild car engines, how to weld, how to use a hammer and build things, fences and decks. And wow, that is incredible. I can't imagine having to survive in the mountains like that. Yeah, and uh, our the where we, where we were, we got snowed in for the winter. So, like, um, once winter came, which was like six months out of the year, you didn't come down from the mountains. You stayed up there until the snow thawed, and they didn't maintain the road, the highways or anything, and you were on your own. So that was like a mini... Self-sufficient, self-sustainable. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, but you stocked up for the winter, you know. Oh, okay. You, um, you shot elk and preserved all the meat, and... You had a, a lot of canned, or uh, you would can your goods. And I remember my stepmom always canning like pears and apples and stuff. Wow. Lots of really cool skills up there. This is a random point, but you told me once that you learned from a Native American dude. Yeah, how to hunt. How to, yeah. Like, yeah. You, like you literally learned from the group of people who who are experts right. at hunting and tracking. So up in these up in this part of the Rocky Mountains, which was called uh I don't remember the name now, but they that reservation was called the Ute Indians. Mm-hmm. And that's where the word Utah came from. That makes sense. And this okay. guy was um yeah, he was uh, as Native American as you can be. <laughs> he was a cool guy. Oh, super cool. Yeah. So then once you came down to Texas, I know that you left the military soon after. Yeah, I think I only spent a year, a little over a year in my my final year in school. 
um, joined the military at 17. At 17? Yeah. My uh, dad had to sign the, the waiver. I was almost 18. Oh, like you were a couple months yeah, away. Yeah, from... a few, four months away or something. Yeah, I get it. That's how I got places too. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds ominous. Yeah. I'm almost, I'm almost 18. And then people are like, all right, well, I'm coming to the club. <laughs> I, I got to those places too. <laughs> not the military though. Did not join the military at, at 17. But, I wouldn't uh, suggest anybody join the military at 17. I was just going to ask or 18 you. Or 19. Why did you join the military? Uh, it was just a family tradition. It was my dad was in the military. My grandfather was a Marine in World War II. His dad, you know, it just wow. went on. It was expected. Oh, okay. my brother was in the military. Oh, that's right. Your brother was in the military. Okay. Yeah. And what branch of the military did you join? Uh, I joined the Navy, but um, we never were on any boats or anything unless they were taking us somewhere. We did special stuff for special people. Oh, and, ooh. Uh, yeah, and, Secret. Um, the thing is, is that a lot of these missions we went on were, you'd think they're so dangerous because we did this, we were trained to do these type of special things. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these times, they were so far behind enemy lines that there was almost no combatants back here, mm -hmm. as opposed to army and Marines that were on the front line experiencing heavier death tolls. They were in battles all day long, all night long. Mm -hmm. When we were dropped in so far in, I mean, we had a few pot shots taken at us, but for the most part, it was safer than being on the front lines with those mm -hmm. guys. I see. So you were not dropped into the front lines. You were dropped in behind the front lines yeah. to do like, I'm assuming reconnaissance work, yeah. intel intelligence. We, I worked in intelligence. We did, we dropped off beaconing devices. We dropped, mm -hmm. uh, we would shoot lasers at targets and um, we would hand off packages and receive packages that we would get people. We'd take people out. Whoa. Um, so we were kind of like uh, UPS, the military <laughs> UPS. glorified UPS. Yeah. We're like, okay, you're late 30 minutes. <laughs> we should have been on this guy. That's hilarious. Yeah. So. So then Navy, I'm going to assume Navy SEALs. That sounds like everything. Oh, Everybody okay. was in there. We had um, Rangers and all, all kinds of special forces. So you um, worked alongside Navy SEALs, but you weren't necessarily a SEAL. Right. I had to go to through the first half of SEAL school, and then the rest of my schools were uh, IT stuff, IE stuff. But yeah, these guys were full beards, um, civilian clothes. We never wore camos or anything, mm -hmm. um, wraps, um, the whole nine yards. And wherever we were, anybody that asked anything, we were CNN. <laughs> we're CNN. Where was CNN? It's the cover that up. That was the, what we said to everybody. Yeah. But you, ha you had a specifically different cover up. You went to aero, uh, Aerospace, or, or, avi avionics school. Avionics yeah. school. So, and we, I was. Uh, I was actually put in a real P3 squadron, which in itself is a spy plane. That was where I worked, which was gathering intelligence through audit. These planes, they go up, these P3s, they go up way high and they just circle at a really slow rate. And we can listen in on conversations from almost the lower stratosphere. Mm. Um, we can take pictures of people inside their car, what they're writing down on a pad of paper. Whoa. Um, so that was my job, but I had to also have a, um, 
like if someone were to investigate you, you can say, hey, I'm if just someone, an airplane mechanic. Yeah, if someone were to interrogate me, I could just say I'm an airplane mechanic. And if they saw my files, I actually went through aviation school. So I'd learned all these, right. these skills. Right. You know? And then I would just go in our bay and just sit there all day. <laughs> and not do any mechanics. I didn't do anything, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'd go out with my friends and like, Hey, can I hold that for you? you know? <laughs> yeah. But nobody knew what we did and nobody knew what we were. Wow. Everybody suspected I was uh, with a squadron called VPU2. And now it's all decommissioned on all the spy stuff we did is, I think, public record for the most part. So I don't think I'm actually saying anything that I shouldn't say. So we're going to have an episode about all of Dan's secret military work. <laughs> that's, that's a, yeah, that's going to be fun. Yeah, it'll be really fun. Um, but go ahead. No, that's, uh, so I was, um, I had a, I had a file and had education and I had schooling and I was even seen in these places doing these type of things. Mm. But, um, when it came time for a mission, I it would was disappear something... for a couple of weeks. And... Wow. That is so cool. Super secretive. <laughs> James Bond's kind of work. Yeah, I, I'm totally glorifying it. Like. Like he said, he's he's he was a glorified UPS driver, but we will get into that some other time. So okay, so the military, the military is also a complete survival, self sufficient, sustainable like community and mentality on its own. Yeah. So it's sort of like you went from one survival situation next to the next, to the next. To the, right? Exactly. So what did the military teach you about self sufficiency and survival? Um... They taught us a lot about teamwork, team building, um, how to rely on other people. Oh, how, because before that, you didn't rely on other people when you were in Detroit. In right. Utah? We didn't. There wasn't too much teamwork in this, this oh, kind of stuff. Okay, I um, see. In Utah, we were completely alone. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, how to overcome any kind of obstacle, um, how to believe in yourself. And then they taught us uh, to some degree how to think and problem solve in stressful and you know chaotic environments huh. in real time quickly mm. um so i i could think and figure out things and problem solve in emergency situations mm. really fast which is critical that was know. that was the rain, main reason i was put into some of these Stress. missions it was my mission it was my mission pack and i had all the information i needed to make changes in it on the spot if we had to do something different, which we never really did. But mm -hmm. um, that's why I was employed with them as well. Gotcha. So how long were you in the military? Almost the whole four years. Okay. So after the military, you were honorably discharged, and then you started working for Boeing, mm -hmm. uh, the NASA branch of Boeing. Yep. So how did you find yourself working for NASA? I wanted to get a job in intelligence because after you come out of the military, well, in the military, we had secret clearance, which there's different levels of clearance, confidential, secret, top secret, I think ultra or something like that. Mm -hmm. And everybody coming out, it has secret for, I think, four years or something. Um, so you can try to get a government job or something, mm -hmm. try to help you out while you're transitioning into the civilian world. I see. And so I was trying to get a job with like the Coast Guard or something, working intelligence. But at the time, there wasn't really that much, any any jobs at all. And these jobs are like Snowden, Snowden jobs, research, a lot of listening, just the same stuff we did. So I couldn't get a job there. So I got a job with Boeing Aerospace 
because I also had on paper all my aviation training, <laughs> schooling, and experience. Your resume looked It was perfect. packed. Yeah, it was great. Um, and they came in and interviewed me, and I said, oh, yeah, sure, I can do all of that. You know? <laughs> They're like, your resume is awesome. I'm like, yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I went, and, and working for Bo Boeing, I worked for a little group inside Boeing called Phantom Works, which is Boeing's branch of NASA. So mm. anything that has to do with NASA is through Phantom Works. Wow. And that that does get you into secret stuff and um, confidential stuff. So I had to have that clearance. The good thing about that was we didn't really do anything aviation-wise. We did aerospace stuff. Oh, I don't know what the difference is. Uh, aerospace is in space. Oh, okay. And aviation is just airplanes and Oh, okay. So, no. So, if they would have put me in an aviation field working on, say, 747s, um, I wouldn't, you know, replacing landing gear, I would struggle with it. Uh, I'd be slow. It'd take me a long time. I'd read the manual a lot, but I didn't have to do any of that. We were designing um, systems for the International Space Station. Oh, wow. And then on top of that, they sent me to engineering school. So I was learning what I was doing as I was doing it. <laughs> what? So you came in not as an engineer. You came in as a like a technician. A technician. Yeah. Okay. And quickly they just said, I guess they had a lot of spots open. They said, do you want to be an engineer? Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, I'll be an engineer. <laughs> you, what, you pay me more? Sure. Yeah, a lot more. And so they sent me to uh, UT for engineering, which University is mostly just Texas. all physics. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I got into uh, Phantom Works. My boss was a colonel in the Air Force that was directly employed by NASA. So he was my boss. Wow. NASA was my boss, but Boeing cut my paycheck. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so left the military and then you went to Boeing. Did, did that prepare you for like off-grid living? Yeah, or? we did a lot of... Um, so upon the space station, everything has to be self-sufficient. Mm. Yeah, you, you don't get to go to the store and buy some food. You don't get to have your waste go through a cleaning plant. So all the water systems, all the food systems, all the oxygen systems, waste systems all had to be self-contained and self-sufficient. So mm -hmm. I learned a lot about like permaculture system. I worked on uh, oxygen scrubbers and I worked on the waste um, recycling system. Got it. Wow. Very, very uh, high level stuff. Yeah. Waste. So glorified janitor. Yeah. And I went the... from glorified UPS to a glorified janitor. <laughs> That's great. I love it. But you, you picked up a lot of good skills. Like you went to engineering class and you learned how to create all of these self-sufficient systems, which mm -hmm. was critical in your later years. You didn't know at the time, obviously, right. but right. it was that knowledge was invaluable. Yeah. If, if there's a road that, pe that people are on in their life, I was definitely on my road. Yeah, you were. You went from Detroit surviving to Utah surviving to military surviving. And then your peak was... Making things for other people to survive. Right. Wow. Yeah. You're so right. It just kind of worked out that way. Wow. I didn't have that <laughs> road. You were bouncing all over the place and then back to this one again? Yeah, it was not a straight line for me. I When I went to college, I went to college for mathematics to learn how to teach. So I, I had no intentions of... Building self-sustainable systems. Or working or, for NASA. Yeah, I, I don't have any survival skills at all. I, I That's very true. She doesn't. I don't. I didn't know how to swim. 
Yeah. He taught me how to swim literally. Ride a bike. Yeah, last year. Yeah. And yeah, I, I didn't learn how to ride a bike until I came here. But I'm doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like my rock climb too. Yes. We have a rock climbing wall in the house. And yeah. She learned how to rock climb. She couldn't even like walk down a slope. She didn't know how to walk and shift her weight and stuff. Yeah, it was it was bizarre to me because like growing up in paved city sidewalks, everything's just flat, you know? And so when you're out here and you're having to walk on an incline for hours, that's that's not that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And you don't I, I didn't have those muscles built up for that. And I, my brain had to kind of get used to it that I'm not walking on a flat surface. I mean, it sounds really like, yeah, like minuscule. For but... all of us that like spent our entire childhood playing on hills and stuff, we're looking at her like, what? We can't relate <laughs> at all, but it's completely true. Like people that don't do things when they're kids, um, when they grow up, they have a really hard time with the most simplest things. Like climbing over a fence or something. There's no way. Oh, yeah. I didn't know how to climb over a fence. Like, I didn't have the upper body yeah, strength. Yeah, so strange. Yeah, it, it was. And my brain couldn't wrap around the fact that, oh, you can lift yourself up and throw your body over. Yeah. You know, everything yeah. was always, my brain was always questioning what I was doing once I got out here. Yeah. But, yeah, so my path wasn't as clear cut as Dan's was because he just went from survival to permaculture or whatever. I was, like, uh, sheltered. Didn't know how to do anything and went to college and was going to do the nine to five, have a family, settle down, all that, all that traditional modern society stuff. But I'm here and he's here. And even though we had two different paths, we somehow ended up in the here same together. Spot. <laughs> we got here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how uh, different paths lead you to different places and we interact with people along the way. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. Yeah, definitely. So I was on my path to the nine to five and Dan currently at this point in his life journey was also a nine to five. But what happened for you to choose to quit the nine to five? Like the, the final straw. Um, okay. So at the time I was very into math and engineering and physics and, you know, my brain was very um, calculated and logical. And I, like most of you, didn't really like sitting in traffic for two hours and waiting in line at Walmart or sitting in the lobby of my dentist and for being on hold for an hour, being on hold for for hours. And actually, that I got a story about that. Uh, Um, You want to hear? Yeah. Okay. So, do you guys want to hear? At the time, we had phone li- or hard lines. We didn't have cell phones, right? I don't even know what that is. But... It's just like a... Yeah, oh, like the landline? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 it has a, okay. like It's a phone. It has a curly Q cord going to it. And Okay, I'm not that young. Yeah, okay. I know what that is. All right, so um, my phone actually had a timer on it for some reason. It was like a digital display, and you could see the number you dialed or see who's calling you. Uh-huh. And then it could tell you how long you've been on the phone for some reason. And so I called like probably the phone company or something to dispute something on my bill or something, mm. which is ironic because <laughs> this has happened on the phone with the phone company. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I call them and they say, okay, we'll transfer you to the right department. Please hold. And I sat there on hold and I sat there for about, uh, I sat there for 45 minutes, an hour, hour, 15 minutes. And, and 
keep in mind, this is you, this is normal. Yeah. Like you usually at this time, you were usually on hold for up to an hour and that was the public ser uh, public service that you get. So I'm on hold and I'm getting sick of it. And at this point, normal people just hang up and call back again, mm -hmm. which I did a million times. And I said, you know, what? I'm going to sit here and see how long they put me on hold, keep me on hold. And so I waited and waited and waited and it, and it went up to like, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half or something, maybe two hours. And she, the lady comes on finally, which I can't believe she actually came on. Mm -hmm. I thought they just completely forgot about me. And she says, and I just voiced my, cause I was so angry. I'm like, I've been on damn hold for two hours. You've kept me on all. And, and she said, I'm so sorry, sir. I'm so sorry. I will get you to the right person. Um, I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. Please hold. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is not insanity. This is not insane for us. We accept this and we this did. is okay. Somehow this is okay. This is not a physical attack on me for doing this to me. Yeah. We don't think that, oh, these people are stealing hours of my life. Yeah. We just say, okay, I'll stay on hold. You stole two hours of my life. Yeah. So I said, forget this. But instead of hanging up, I put the phone aside and I actually had to go to work or start getting ready to go to work. And I, I went to work and I came back and of course, um, I came back like 12 hours later and I came back. She's not on the phone anymore. They probably answered sometime, mm -hmm. but I looked on the, the, the timer and it said three hours and 50 minutes or something. And I said, that's it. I'm not going to do this my whole life. I'm done. Mm -hmm. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. And from that point on, I wanted to find out how much of my life is being stolen. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to calculate it. How much was on hold? Yeah. How, how many hours do I sit on hold uh, per year? How many hours do I sit in the dentist's office waiting? How many hours do I sit in traffic? How many hours do I sit in the line? How many hours am I not living life, living in society? And so I kept track of my average time in traffic, my average time on hold. And after a few months of getting a general idea, I calculated it per year and then per 80, 85 years, which is probably about as long as I'm going to live. And it came out to be like 11 years. Wow. 11 years of my life. I'm not going to live. So instead of living to be 85, I'm going to live to be 74. Wow. And I said, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. In fact, I encourage all of you to make the same calculations. Anybody that's interested in, in leaving society or becoming more self-sufficient, um, make your calculations and uh, see what society is doing to you. Um, and so I said, I'm done. From that point on, we started planning to leave. Oh my goodness. That was the pivotal moment for you mm -hmm. when you decided, I'm no longer going to wait to start living. I am going to start living right yeah. now. Yeah. Even if it kills me, I'm going to start living. Wow. And I'm going to live life. Wow. Yeah. Every time I hear that story, it like gives me chills because it's something that most people, like you were saying, we don't do the calculations and we just accept that this is the way that life is. And that's just, I'll just live this way. And this to us is living. Being on hold is living for yeah. us. You know, yeah. we have such a low standard for living that that is living. And uh, I, my pivotal moment wasn't as inspirational as yours. It's probably very similar to the rest of everyone else. It was during the pandemic, like I was saying before, and it wasn't 
something it wasn't a revelation that came out of me like it did for you it was sort of forced on me it was like boom pandemic end of the world what the heck are you gonna do now that was that that was definitely pivotal for me um because i was you know almost done with college and i didn't know how to do anything with anything and all of a sudden we're hit within the world and it was a really eye-opening moment for me and it's also when when i decided that i'm going to leave california and leave the city life it was also a little bit freeing did you feel that sense of of freeness oh huge yeah yeah it was like a huge load that was taken off my shoulders yeah. And I knew the, the, the horrible thing about that is I never even knew I had that load on me the whole time. Like I'm yeah. sure the viewers walk around every day, don't feel like I have a load. And then you leave and you're like, whoa, I feel like I'm floating. Yeah. You know, yeah. you felt that same way. Yeah, I did. I really did. It just, like you said, it's, I had all these stressors and load on my shoulders and it, it was just nice to not have that anymore. And that period lasted briefly <laughs> but it was it felt really good to have in that moment okay now just back All right, to now yeah. now what i do <laughs> but um i guess my next question for you um which would probably it applies more for you because you were making a lot of money at the time and you were living the high life the capitalist lifestyle if you felt all of this overbearing stresses of society, why not just get a PA, you know, or like a secretary or I don't know, someone to help you organize your life. Why leave society as a whole? Um, I, I guess I probably could have done that. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, I should have, I should have done that. That's where my brain should (laughs) have went to. Um, if I was kind of, I was not kind of, I was a lot um, but hurt. I, I was, I was very like, I had hard feelings towards society and I was very offended by what they were doing to me um. and not just on my time, but how they were treating me and how, um, you know, we don't get asked to play this game. Mm. We're just born into it. Yeah. Um, and nobody, nobody even knows they can leave. Like my parents would say, uh, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, or you can just leave society if you want. Mm. The teachers didn't say, teach us that, you know. What are you going to be, Johnny? A doctor, a lawyer, or are you going to leave society and become a hermit? Mm. You know, so because they lied to me um, so long and because of how they treated me and what they did to me, um, I was very hurt by it. Mm. And I didn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. Okay, I see. And it was just sort of your natural path that you were headed towards anyway. Yeah, that that road was still going. Even though I didn't know it, that road was still going down that. Yeah, it just sort of made sense with what you were feeling and thinking and all of the skills that you've acquired yeah. and experiences that you've acquired throughout your life. It was just sort of the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. Yeah. I didn't want to have anything to do with coworkers, bosses, even friends and family. Yeah. Like I was, I was so done. Um. If you haven't checked it out yet, check out my series called Think About It. And you can see every episode shows something of how teachers and the media and our government and even friends and coworkers and your parents, how they lied to you. There's so many things that they lied to you about. And I just, I, I didn't like the lying and the, yeah. 
Dan is a natural truth seeker. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a natural lie seeker. Liar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I am. I like being ignorant. I like the comfort yeah. of ignorance, you know, yeah. and I will gladly pull the wool over my own eyes so that I can, I can feel good, you know? Yeah. And, go ahead. And Dan's the complete opposite. He's going to rip everything out of his way so that he can seek the truth no matter how yeah. hard the life will be for him and tear everything and everybody apart in the process yeah and i wouldn't wish that on anybody i wouldn't wish knowledge and um the truth on anybody even though i have a think about it series that tells everybody the truth you should turn, tune into that now um yeah it's a hard life yeah, it's it rough is. when you're living in a pink bubble with flowers and around you like most americans do mm -hmm. um that's a much nicer life. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of times that I wish I was as strong as Cypher and gone back into the Matrix mm -hmm. and could have just forgot about it all. Yeah, we will refer to Cypher a lot in this, yeah. in, in our podcast, because it, it is like that. It's like you unplugged yourself from the Matrix. Yeah. And you went out there and you lived off grid, literally off the electrical grid. And yeah. It was incredible. And I, I compare myself more to Cypher. Like, you're like Neo, and I'm like, like, a part of me still wishes that I was back in society. And I I don't think I will ever act on it, but I, I really don't know, to be honest with you. But so you were saying that life out there was hard or that you led a hard life because you were constantly seeking truth. Was it hard out there when you actually left? Yeah, it just like the Matrix, living inside this underworld in the Nebuchadnezzar was um, hard. It was dirty. It was, you know, you sweat a lot. You cut your hand. I have cuts all over my hands yeah. all the time. Um, you're always damaging yourself. The physical drain is, it's more than I'd ever felt in the military or in Utah or at Boeing. And then there's the mental and emotional. No, nobody thinks about that, you know. you If you're thinking about leaving society, you're probably thinking, I wonder if I can split wood with an axe or build my own house. Mm -hmm. um, but the bigger strain, the bigger obstacle was the mental and emotional toll it took on us. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I had prepared very little for. Mm -hmm. I prepared the physical, I prepared, prepared skills and knowledge, um, but the emotional and mental was um, something we lacked. Yeah. And you didn't do it alone. You went out with your ex-wife. Yeah. Who we will try not to name. Yeah. She deserves her own privacy now. Yeah. She went through a lot with me. She had a hard life too. And, and she, uh, she got through it. And now she kind of plugged back in the matrix again. She really did. Oh yeah. man. Yeah. Her, her story. I wish we could have her here on the, on the podcast, but. Yeah, um, we could have a whole story just about her journey. Yeah. I would love to hear her perspective of it. Which, by the way, I don't think we mentioned in the beginning, but we're we're a couple. <laughs> and when he talks about, you know, going off grid and things that he did with his ex-wife, it, it's not me. It's someone else. Yeah. So, yeah, we are romantically involved. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Applause. Yay. <laughs> so it wasn't easy out there for you. you. But you did it for seven years. Yeah. It, I worked more out there. I, I worked more after being retired than I ever worked in the, in the workforce. Wow. The field. So if you're going out there to not work as much and kind of chillax a little bit, I would stay in society. It's mm -hmm. a much more comfortable life. But if you're going out there for other reasons, um, like to get away from society or you don't believe 
in the way our country's going or something, or that you think that our systems may collapse mm-hmm. in the near future, COVID, then this might be an option, but mm-hmm. understand you're going to work hard. Yeah, definitely. So you were out there for seven years with your then wife, and then you returned to society. What sort of pushed you to return to society? We didn't decide to. It was, it was, I, I didn't want to at all. It was kind of forced on us. Let's just say that the government highly frowns on people who leave their system of control. Black helicopters. What? Uh, yeah. Invasion that... of privacy, interrogation. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. We'll, That's ominous. We, we can get into it more in a different topic. But yeah, black helicopters on the horizon. And, oh, wow. Uh, and then that was it for us. Wow. I, I can't believe that that happened. That, I think that night or the next morning we left and, and literally jumped the, across the river. To Mexico. Oh, wow. And I said, I'm, not, I'm done with this country. And um, we, sw- but we swam the other way. <laughs> you know, the legals come this way. We swam too much. <laughs> we didn't sw- swim, swim, actually. We drove a four-wheel drive truck through a low spot in the river <laughs> and, um, and crossed. And my, right. my ex-wife is actually from Mexico. She'd never been to the United States before, so it was very easy for us to just go back and just bounce right back into it. Right, because you, you're... Where you went to live off grid was oh, yeah, West Texas, border of uh, the U.S. and Mexico. Yeah, my property was about 3,000 acres or something. Part of my property bordered Big Bend National Park, which is one of the biggest parks in the United States. It, another part bordered uh, Mexico, and then another part bordered what's called the Badlands. And there's actually a TV show on National Geographic right now called the Badlands, and my property was inside the Badlands. Yeah which we can get into more later. But. Yeah, we'll we'll have an episode strictly on what life was like out there for Dan and, and his ex-wife. In the Badlands. Yeah, in the Badlands. So very invasive situation happened. And, and something else happened too. I remember you were telling me that like there's another factor to this with the side of Yeah, things. so, um, okay, well, well, that kind of led up to this. Oh, oh, okay. So, so now you guys are across the border to Mexico. No, no, oh. we're still on the, on the property. Okay. Neither, neither one of us wanted to leave, but we had zero communication with the outside world. For seven years, we didn't step foot off the property. Nobody stepped foot on the property. For we, seven years? We never went to a grocery store or um, a bank or anything. No phone, no internet, no TV, no communications Goodness. at all with the outside world. And to give you an idea, the nearest neighbor was like three hours away driving and the nearest town or city was like five and a half hours away so we were even if we wanted to or even if somebody else wanted to they could not get to our our property right unless they were in helicopters (laughs) black helicopters (laughs) in fact actually the first time we ever went to look at the land the realtor flew us in by helicopter oh wow because there's no even not even roads going to our property oh wow so it's out there and so we never had any want to be connected in any way um, until around the seven-year mark. And she started feeling that there was something wrong with her mom. And so we came out and we um, went to an internet cafe a few hours away. Can you describe what an internet cafe is? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's not around anymore. 
No. No internet cafes. So an internet cafe was like when internet started becoming popular, but nobody had like, nobody had phones at all. And very few people had like, I don't think even laptops were out yet, but we had desktops and you could be hooked up on the internet and you could chat with each other through Yahoo chat or something. And these, like a coffee shop or just some, like a dry cleaner or something would have internet, put a desktop computer there and charge people by the hour to mm -hmm. be on their computer. I guess it's like the, the business center of a hotel. Mm -hmm. You go in there, they got a printer, a computer you can get online. And, right. Um, so she went, we went there and she emailed her mom and her mom came back and she said, I have cancer and it's terminal and I have less than a year to live. Wow. And so went to Mexico to be with her mom. I went with her and I started, I, I wrote guides and books and stuff during that time and published them and telling our story and tell other people how to do this, a very rough version of one of my books now, mm. but, um, somehow CNN had find out about our story and they did an interview with me on, on TV. And then when we went back to our homestead, we started being open again with society and being connected with mm. society. And we started taking in people that wanted to learn what we, our knowledge that we'd gathered. Mm -hmm. um, and that lasted for about six months until the black helicopters came. Oh, wow. And that, that ended very quickly. And that uh, sucks. Yeah. So that was the other situation. Then her mom died, but she got to see her. And when we went out there, we never planned on seeing any of our family again. Mm -hmm. Like we were out there for life. Like we're going to die here. You can dig a, a hole right here and bury my body here. Wow. Yeah. Another question about living off grid, I can understand if something were to happen to society and one would have to know how to live on their own. But what would you say to some of our viewers that would say things like, he's crazy. Why would anyone want to leave society? I love my iPhone and my ACs and my comfortable bed and whatnot. What would you say to them um, based on the experience that you had when you were out there? We didn't live in a cave. We didn't walk around with lanterns. We lived better than and more comfortably than most Americans do today. Like I said, I had an indoor pool. We were sipping margaritas all day. To not contradict myself, this is after we developed all the systems that maintain themselves. So um, water catchment systems, float valves to automatically give the water, food and water to the animals. Okay, um, I see. Built so. the house. So once we were all done, there was a huge building phase lasted years. And once we got all that done, then we were able to just sit out on our deck and fly a kite or um, oh. sit around and read a book or drink a margaritas or something. I see. So you had to establish these systems. And then once the systems were self-sufficient, you were able to live the life yeah, that you that we wanted had dreamed to. to yeah. For the last couple of years of being yeah. out there. But yeah, no bills, no debt, no mortgage, no taxes, no expenses of any kind, no crime, no pollution, wow. no traffic, no noise. No being on hold, <laughs> no people, no stress. I didn't even own a clock or a calendar to be able to tell what day or time it was. Wow. Who wouldn't want to live like that? Yeah. I mean, Sounds that's, like heaven. Yeah, that's the, the, when you compare it to the other side that we've been talking about this whole time, this one's starting to sound pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, I, I completely agree. It was, it was hard for me the first year and a half or so, but once you kind of fall into it and you have your systems established and again, I didn't do anything like what he did. I'm just 
the first sort of level of self-sufficiency, which is just sort of homesteading. Like we grow our own food and we don't depend on the electrical grid and we have a septic system, well water, all that stuff. But once we have those things established and the construction phase is gone, it does become very dreamlike. So going back to what we were talking about before, um, I just had to add that, ask that question because I think a lot of people are sort of wondering why put yourself through all of that hard work, you yeah, know? Yeah, I mean, that's why we did it. But right. somebody else is most likely going to have a different um, answer. Answer. It might be because COVID scared the crap out of everybody and they think that um, the decline of our... By the way, I predicted COVID in my book, Apocalypse, How to Survive a Global Crisis, yeah. which came out in 2013. 2011, I 2011, think. 2011, right 2012. Yeah, 2011. And it actually names COVID as the as a possible um, viral outbreak. Ooh. Uh, because at the time, I had been inoculating our goats for COVID. Like, COVID is a big disease, a virus that affects your goats. Uh -huh. And so you had to give them boosters for that. I knew a little bit about COVID. And I went to medical school. I went, did my pre-med pre at UT. And I could see that that is a very likely, I, I named some other viruses too. So I shouldn't say I just predicted that one. I mm -hmm. predicted several, rabies being another one. But yeah, it's in the book. I even predicted like toilet paper would become a commodity. I went a little further instead of just storing and bulking up on it. I said that people would use it as commerce. Oh, wow. Like here's a thing of toilet paper. Give me a chicken. <laughs> and, and, and that's because. Anything that we're addicted to, we would pay a lot for. So we're addicted to toilet paper, obviously. Shoes, cigarettes, alcohol, even pornography, like mm -hmm. magazines and stuff. If there, was, if there was a major collapse, nudie magazines, save your, save your subscription because <laughs> they're going to be worth a lot of money. I don't want to get too much into that. We can go into a whole episode about that. Yeah. But yeah, I actually, um, so yeah, if, if they're scared about COVID or they don't like the way our government's going. Right. Uh, any any number of reasons. So now we're at the point where you return to society, but you didn't come back to the U.S. You decided to go to Mexico. When you were in Mexico, you started a nonprofit relief work organization. Um, yeah. What prompted you to do that? So the was it the Red Cross? Maybe it was Crux Rojo, which is the South Central American version of the Red Cross, they contacted us and asked if we would come down to um, Haiti mm. after the earthquake and implement some of our self-sufficient means there. When a disaster hits like Katrina or Haiti, major earthquake in California, you'll get the first responders that come in. Crooks Rojo, China Relief, USAID, Red Cross, um, the UN, they are all major um, first responders. And they save lives, they drop pallets of water, they drop pallets of food, and they set up what's called tent cities. Right. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of tents for people. Right. And then they pretty much check out and go on to the next disaster. Oh, okay. So they come in there just to make sure that these people are, are immediately safe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and once they're immediately safe, they move on to the next disaster. And that's how it needs to be. They yeah. need, they're needed somewhere else. What happens next is what's called second responders come in. And that was us. That was my nonprofit. And we, I would take anywhere from 12 to 30 people, volunteers from all over the world, 
into these places. We were in Haiti after the earthquake and both cholera outbreaks. We were in Colombia for the floods, Venezuela during the economic and government collapse. We were in Micronesia for the tsunami. We were in New Orleans after Katrina. We were in Japan after the melt the meltdown. Fukushima. Yeah. We go in there and we set up longer and even permanent means of sustaining yourself. So in Haiti specifically, I brought my design for compost toilets to the Port-au-Prince City Corps of Engineers, and they built thousands of my compost toilets. Wow. Put them in homes. And the other thing I did is I had a hydroponic system, and they implemented that in each little township. So they had a community hydroponic system. So that's what we would do, and we did it all over the world. Yeah, so you went in there, and now that these people's society has literally collapsed, you you went in there and taught them how to be more self-sufficient. Yes. Because up to that point, they have been relying on society systems. And yes, their septics, their sewer systems goes somewhere else, and somebody deals with it. Mm-hmm. They get their food. They don't know how. It's, it's just provided to them. Right. Somebody fixes their car for them. Uh, here in the United States, probably someone mows your lawn for yeah. you. Um, we're dependent 100% on society. Wow. Okay. So then how many years did you do your nonprofit for? We did that for a few years, maybe five years. Five years or so. Yeah. Wow. And then I started experiencing what's called caregiver burnout. Compassion fatigue? Compassion fatigue. Caregiver fatigue? Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't take it anymore. It's a lot. I couldn't. It's a lot. Yeah. I couldn't take seeing the suffering. The suffering is what got me. Yeah. I saw a lot of death. In Mexico, we were in Mexico for the cartel wars. Yeah. And I did a lot of relief throughout Mexico. And I saw a lot of beheadings, executionary style beheadings. One time they pulled over our bus, put us all in a row kneeling, and they were asking everybody questions. And then they finally got the two people that they were looking for, and they shot them and killed them. We all got back on the bus, and we kept going to Guadalajara. So I saw a lot of death. I had seen a lot of death. Since I was born, I started seeing bodies in Detroit and stuff. And in the war and everything. But the suffering is what got me. The the people suffering, I just couldn't take it anymore. And also at the time, we had seen animals dying a lot. Um, you'd see pets, dogs, and cats that were trapped in the houses. They're they're trapped in this in a, in a prison. And the floodwaters are rising and, and just a lot of dead bodies of cats and dogs. And nobody was doing anything to save these animals. So there was a an opportunity for me to transition from helping people to helping animals, which is what, if you, if you don't know anything about the castle, um, we live on an animal sanctuary that I've created and we save animals from zoos and circuses and private collectors, animals that are too old to perform. Um, they would put them down or, or too young and they can't find another zoo or something, or somebody hits a deer or something. We, take not really dogs and cats but we that's what we do here and so i, I needed that transition because mm, you were feeling the burnout of... yeah I, I just couldn't take the suffering anymore oh, the man. screams the crying kids dying in front of me and yeah it's i mean i feel like you still deal with the repercussions today it's hard for him to be around children even if they're just laughing you developed a lot of ptsd from your relief work which uh most people don't really talk about they really glorified the relief work which which is great you know like yeah. we 
honestly, it's great. Like, I give you all the credit in the world for everything that you did for those five years. And to all of the people out there right now saving lives, boots on the ground, trying to get people into a better into a better place. Yeah, for sure. Like, we give you all of the respect in the world. Because no offense to the rest of society who sit behind their little laptop and, you know. Talk about it. Talk about saving the world or pretend like what they're saying is saving the world. People like you, you guys are actually out there actually saving the world. And so it's incredible what you guys do. A lot of times we don't think about the repercussions of seeing all that suffering and death. So it's it's really hard on, it really is hard on you and yeah. everyone else out there. So thank you for sharing that. It's something that not a lot of people talk about. Yeah. Oh, okay, so that got really deep. Yeah, it's real well. So, so you're so right now you're based out of Mexico, and you're not right doing, now, right now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. not not right I, now, right now. Okay, yeah. but in in Dan's timeline. timeline, he's based out of Mexico, and he's it's sort of his headquarters, yeah. and you're going to different countries to do relief work, and then. After the caregiver's fatigue, you decide to come back to the U.S. And and that came out of the PTSD, actually, that you started to develop. Yeah. Yeah. When we were in Mexico, it was getting harder and harder for me to go on these 20-hour flights and stuff across the world. Yeah. So I was staying back more and more, and the team, my team, all my people were going out, including my ex-wife, and they were doing it. And then one day... I just started panicking and it never stopped. Like if anybody's had a panic attack, yeah, they last a few minutes maybe. Mine was lasting 24 hours, oh 48 hours, 72 hours. It was a nonstop panic attack. And we thought that there was something medically wrong in my brain or something, some aner aneurysm or something. Mm. And so we went to the doctor in, in uh, Monterrey and he sent me to a psychologist and she gave me a little vial of clonazepam. And I shouldn't give me the vial. She just put a few drops in water and I drank it. It stopped the panic attacks instantly. Mm -hmm. Instantly. Clonazepam, thank gods for, for uh, benzoids. Oh, no, we're not trying <laughs> no, to, we're not like, encourage. But, kind of hard to. <laughs> um, but they, they helped. They did. Yeah. They, um, but that was, that was the result of everything I'd seen. Everything I'd seen in Detroit, everything I'd seen in, even in Utah, of us killing elk and the military. And wow. then my relief work, it was not just the war or my relief work. It was my whole life of seeing death and suffering. And she says, you have uh, PTSD. And at the time, at the time it was called Gulf War Syndrome, I think. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what we call it. And everybody had it. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I'm like, I don't have that. Yeah. Because that's just like, everybody claims to have it. And I, great, give me a paycheck for the VA, but I want to know what actually is wrong with me. Right. And she says, no, you have PTSD. So my wife, my ex-wife said, we need to bring you back to the United States and get you treatment and get you around your support system, support system family and friends, which weren't much of a, I'm sorry, but they weren't much of a support system to begin with. We so. love you guys. Though. Yeah, we love you. <laughs> But that was the decision. I didn't want to come back. Yeah, because you leaving Mexico is a hard concept for me to wrap my mind yeah. around. Because anytime that you talk about Mexico, it's fond memories, good people, great food. You love the culture. 
you're fluent in Spanish. This big white man who out of nowhere just speak Spanish fluently. I'm sure it was a hard decision for you to leave. I was, she pretty much drugged me. She drugged me back. She drugged me and drugged me back, <laughs> kicking and screaming. Yeah. Uh, actually, she drove all the way back because oh. I refused to come back. Yeah. I literally refused. Like, I'm not driving. Yeah. I'm not going back. And then also what happened to us, why we left, you know? Oh, so, with the invasion of privacy. Yeah. So the, the whole thing about Mexico being great, by the way, Mexico's great. Everything you see on the news is another lie by the media and by the government to a certain point. There is things going on, but it's like somebody coming from, Fra I, I tell people this, it's like somebody come from France or from England or something and going to Detroit or going to Compton and saying, oh my God, the United States is so violent. They're killing each other in the streets here. Yeah, it's like the school shootings, the mass shootings, yeah. you know, like it's so publicized globally yeah. that someone from France would be like, I don't want to go to the U.S. There's yeah. mass shootings yeah. there. Yeah. And I'm like, um, well, I'm living right now in the U.S. and there's no mass there's, shootings there's, Nobody's died right at right my Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the way it is. There's no kids walking into schools and shooting everybody. The, the rate of child abuse is very low. The rate of divorce rate is very low. The, in Mexico? Mm-hmm. The, even the homicide rate is very low. So in a lot of ways, Mexico is a lot safer than the United States. Mm. So that combined with how I left, why I left the United States, I didn't want to come back. Mm. Um, I see. So, but she brought me back and I went to the VA and um, they put me in these group psychological sessions with, with real, I'm a, I'm a combat vet, but these guys are real, real combat vets. They saw, a, like I saw, the horrors of war, maybe 20 times, I went on a couple dozen missions. They saw it every single day they were out there. And that's really takes a toll on you. Mm -hmm. And so I was in group with these guys and they were telling the same stories as I was telling, as far as waking up in the middle of the night, screaming, almost shooting your wife when she comes in. Cause you think it's a enemy combatant nice. yelling at your wife, mistreating your wife, abusing your wife. And then the panic attacks, anxiety. So at that point, I said, oh, my God, I have PTSD. Oh, that was when you, you finally accepted yeah, it. Yeah, when I heard their stories, these, these guys that are real combat vets, they had the same experiences with this, this sickness. sickness as yeah. I did. That's when I knew I had PTSD. Wow. That is a scary realization when you're diagnosed with anything. Yeah. I was diagnosed with disordered eating earlier this year, and that, I don't know if you remember how... Yeah. Yeah, took How a toll on you. Depressing that was, but yeah, when yeah, you, you realize went through, you went through um, a horrible time with that too, and yeah. even before that, before you were diagnosed, yeah, it, it was, was a fight. Yeah, it, it is a fight, and it's a constant "what is wrong with me" kind of mentality, you know. Yeah. And then when you figure it out, I expect it to be to feel relief, like oh, I finally find out yeah. what's wrong with me. But it became like okay, there is something wrong with me, yeah. and now what do I do? Yeah. Do I have to live with this for the rest of my life? Which often, unfortunately for people who have PTSD, it is something that you have to live for the rest of your life. doesn't mean you can't have a good quality of life. You can still cope with it. You'll be okay. But it is something that, unfortunately, um, a lot of people in that community will have to bear with for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So, um. For all the PTSD vets out there and we're just people suffering from PTSD, 
we feel it and we feel you and we're sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We relate. Yeah. And, uh, okay. So anyways, yeah. we keep getting really deep. So now you are back in America. So you are, what are you doing now? You're doing like, you're teaching self-sufficiency now, right? Or you're beginning to write your book, Apocalypse. No, I was, you didn't no, I wrote, start, I oh. wrote Apocalypse in Mexico. Oh, you wrote it in Mexico. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think it was published while we were still in Mexico. We came back here, I think in 2012, maybe 2013. I don't remember. Okay. I was starting to write off the grid. Oh, Bre I mean, breaking, breaking the grid. The grid. Yeah. Okay. At the time it was called DIY everything. Right. And it was just an accumulation of all of my knowledge and everything we learned how to do off the grid, everything we learned how to do in our relief work. So I was writing that and we were built, I was building this place, uh -huh. which I built completely alone. And by this place, he means the bunker, which yeah. is this massive monument of a structure yeah. for all of your end of the world wet dreams. Yeah. Yeah. It's the walls are two foot thick concrete, 30 feet high. Our front doors are 27 feet tall, double solid steel doors. Any combat vat out there that has PTSD, you can come here and you'll feel very safe. In here. <laughs> um, yeah. It's far away from society. You... Everything you can imagine for the end of the world is yeah. We have is here twelve foot perimeter fence with barbed wire and mm -hmm. uh, anyway, we started. I started building that place. This yeah, place, I, this place, and and I started trying to recover my health and go on that uh, road, that mm. journey. Yeah, it, and it's still a journey to be honest with you. But we'll we'll have an episode specifically about mental health and an episode specifically about the bunker yeah. and everything that went into it. But it took you another decade to build this place, yeah, right? Almost, I think it was eight or nine years. Right. It took you two years of designing blueprints mm -hmm. and whatnot. And at the same time, you were also writing Breaking yeah, the Grid. Breaking so the grid. you were kind of going in between writing Breaking the Grid and building the bunker. Yeah, and we were accepting animals, too. Oh, yeah, and the animal sanctuary. Okay. So we were taking in animals, and, and I was here alone most of the time because my ex was still out doing relief work around the world. We still had our nonprofit in Mexico. We kept our properties in Mexico, and we were, I was going back and forth. Mm -hmm. I would spend um, several months there and then come back here. And, yeah. Um, so, so I was alone most of the time here. But you were keeping yourself busy, though. You yeah. were writing a book. Accepting animals and building the bunker. And yeah. It was just sort of uh, a conglomerate of, of things that you were doing yeah. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So so that took about 10 years, which would have taken probably 10 months if I had 20-man crew. Absolutely. Like, he built this place practically on his own. We we have a few helpers. Yeah, here. we had some, some fat friends that come over and, and hold things for me while I did things and um, would help me weld all the beams. That took a lot of welding. Yeah. Help me hang in drywall. And I'm very grateful for them. They know who they are. One person in particular who I taught how to wire plugs and wired all our plugs. He knows who he is. <laughs> um, he does not like drill bits. But anyway, yeah, if I had 20 guys, it would have taken me 10 months. Mm. To be honest, like there's not a single board in this place. There's not any wood at all in here. And even though it's all concrete and metal, it cost me probably 10 times less than if I would have done a traditional stick frame house, mm. the same size. I see. It was a lot easier, a lot quicker. It's a lot 
stronger. Yeah. And it was a lot cheaper. Yeah, it won't be knocked down by hurricanes, won't be burned down by no. wildfires or anything. So it, it is, like I said, it's a monument of a structure. It's amazing. Yeah. It's like a pyramid in yeah. backwoods of East Texas. Yeah, it'll be here for millions of years. Yeah, it'll be here forever, Yeah, you kind honestly. Of, it touched on it, it. It's flood-proof, hurricane-proof, fire-proof, black mold-proof. And I, I just didn't like the idea of killing a bunch of sentient beings stacking their dead bodies around me and living inside their decaying, rotting corpses for the rest of my life. That, that idea just wasn't doing it for me. Well, if you put it that way, yeah. that's kind of disturbing. Yeah, <laughs> it's very disturbing. Yeah. And we we don't question these things. Oh. We say, Bob has a wood house, so I'm going to have a wood house too. Yeah. And that, I just didn't, I thought that was crazy. And wood is a very cheap, we can go into a whole episode about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anyways, okay, so. So that's why we built the bunker. Right, so the bunker, and you, you were writing your book at the time, and the book was just published last year. It finally, finally reached its final stage last year. And can you tell us about your latest book and how it encapsulates all of your experiences? Yeah, so uh, again, Everything I learned being off the grid, everything I learned at NASA, everything I learned hunting and trapping in mountains, how to preserve me, how to raise silkworms, collect their silk sacks, separate their silk, clean the silk to make silk thread, to make string, to make rope, yeah. um, all the way across the board to how to blow glass. And every single thing there is that anybody has ever done past or present was in the book mm. uh, anything that anybody can do you can do too just as good or even better mm -hmm. um, and people don't think that but these people are no different than you are you might not be a painter and this guy's a great painter but you can paint a picture just like he does it'll just take a lot longer some people have an easier road to it but you could build a computer if you wanted to rebuild an engine if you knew how so that's what Breaking the Grid was. It was literally how to do everything, DIY everything. Mm. And it was 15,000 pages. 15,000 pages? 15,000 pages was the original manuscript. Do you know how big a book that would be? Yeah, it would be like that big. Yeah. And the publisher said, we're going to break this down to it. I think it's a 10 or 12 part series. Each book having either 300 or 500, I think it was 500 pages per book. So we started doing that. And then they said, it's still too big. We're going to do one book, 500 pages, I think. Yeah. And that was too big. So now the book, which is published, thanks the gods, mm -hmm. is about, about 300 pages. It went from 15,000 pages to, to 300. 300 pages. Yeah. And, well, a lot of the pages, not to um, embellish, but a lot of the pages were photos and uh, drawings yeah. and, and designs. It wasn't all writing. I don't think I'll give them a good write 15,000 pages in their life. I see. But um, it was just all the content that I had acquired. It was all condensed into 300 pages, and the title of it changed from DIY everything to breaking the grid, how to buy nothing, make everything, and live sustainably. So, yeah, here it is. Check it out. It's my life's work. The link will be below. So that was, uh, yeah, that was breaking the grid. Yeah, and it's it's a great 
read it's not even if you're not looking to you know leave society or be more self-sufficient and you're just like me who just wants some arts and crafts to do you can definitely find that in there i remember one summer i was collecting the mole hair off of the goats <laughs> yeah collecting all the shed hair yeah all the shed he yeah. hair and i was following the um instructions in the book to make uh yarn yarn yes yeah. i was trying to make yarn yes we did and make we yarn. did make yarn yeah. yes yeah so it's it's a lot of fun it's for everyone beginners experts alike because it, again it goes from just something as simple as making paper from recycled paper to building a whole solar oven it covers a variety of skills and experiences and lots of things for you to take a look at and like dan was saying the book is covered in colorful images and blueprints that he designed and notes that he has taken over the years when he was living off grid and uh, it's an incredible very detailed book you can definitely tell that an engineer wrote this book. <laughs> yeah. Where Apocalypse, How to Survive the Global Crisis, is designed all around how to survive. It's also personal notes taken in those locations. So I saw how people started looting and I saw how people were stealing gas and how, mm. um, you know, I saw all the worst things that we do. When you were doing your relief work? We were doing the relief work. It was very easy to predict if a situation like that occurred, mm -hmm. this is exactly what's going to happen. So I have over 100,000 hours in the field mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, that book is actually what led me to work on these different television shows mm -hmm. because they want um, someone like, let's say the TV show ER, they actually get a real physician, a real surgeon, mm -hmm. and they consult with him to make the set, to make costumes. Um, look exactly how they are supposed to, or as close as possible. So when they're doing a TV show about the end of the world, they want to know what their costumes would look like and where would they get water. By the way, if the end world ever ends, there's 35 to 40 gallons of potable drinking water in every single house inside their hot water heater. So yeah, there's a little tip for you there guys you go. there. <laughs> uh, but all that's in apocalypse, but that was the survival book. Um, mm, I see. Whereas this was the self-sufficient self-sufficiency. Ah, uh, I yeah. see. Yeah, Dan's great. At, like, I can't watch a TV show with him because he'll pick away at how things are so unrealistic. We yeah. were watching something the other day about the end of the world. Uh, what was it called? Jericho, I think. Yeah, Jericho. Jericho. Good. Yeah. Good show. Yeah, great show. Uh, one of the the mayor or something had a belt buckle that was all shiny and yeah. polished and stuff yeah. and. It's the end of the world, guys, and yeah. he's got these nice, shiny belt buckles. All of the backpacks are brand clean new, and clean. The gloves were all clean. Yeah, like, freshly ironed. How do you have clean gloves if you're touching things with them and you're not washing? Yeah, and that belt buckle is supposed to be eroded. and Yeah, it's supposed to be all rusty. and Right, and yeah. so it's it's just funny to watch the end of the world shows with him. He's just like, that's not how things would actually be. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what they ask me. They say, how does the belt buckle look? Maybe mm. not that specific, but how's the belt look? How's their clothes look? Where's it going to be ripped at? Should we rip them or should we, uh, you know? What? Like your butt is going to be really dirty, mm. you know, because you're always sitting on dirt and logs and stuff. Right. But you're not, and your knees too will be dirty. But like the, the inside of your calves aren't going to be dirty. So you can't just go in, in wardrobe and make everything dirty you're right that's, you can't just, that's not believable either yeah dunk yeah. it in mud yeah okay i see so yeah that's the stuff they asked me that is so cool that is really cool very hollywood yeah <laughs> 
Okay, so we've sort of caught everyone up to where we are now in life. Looking back on your extraordinary life journey, what are some of the most profound life lessons or insights that you've gained? Because you're what, 45 now? So Yeah, I'm get pushing 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say you hear the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Again, a lie to a certain point. I would say what doesn't kill you makes you weaker mm-hmm. because each one of these things that didn't kill me without me knowing it unwittingly made me weaker and weaker and weaker wow. and weaker mentally and to the point where, and a lot of anybody with PTSD or any combat vets will back me up when I say mentally, I'm like a little baby. Mm-hmm. And you too, you can back it up. There'll yeah. be times where I'm bawling my eyes out like a little baby curled up in the fetus position yeah. because of all these things I went through that didn't kill me. Yeah, nobody tells us that, or they tell us a lie about that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I kind of realized also that everything was a lie. Even going to war over there was a big lie. And it always is, though. It's always, but that's why they target people that are 17, 18, 19. When you get 35, 45, you realize. Hell no, I'm not going over there and doing that for you. Yeah. You know, a bunch of old white people want more money. And yeah. I'm doing that. Trying to exploit other countries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when you're young, you don't realize yeah. that. You're naive. And then the third thing I'd say was anybody, anywhere, everywhere can do everything that I did just as good or better and, and can do anything anybody else can do just as good as better. Like me? Yep. Just like, and that's part of the reason I realized that. Is because people like you and you that I took out of these places that didn't know anything and never been out of the country could do all these things. So don't think that, don't sell yourself short. You can do any of this stuff. You really can. I'm not trying to hype you up and say, you're great. I'm just telling you the realistic side of this is that you can do anything. Right. We're humans, just like these other humans. There's no difference between us. Right. And that's one thing that like, uh, sometimes I get really discouraged because Dan makes it look so easy. Everything that he does, like, almost everything just comes very naturally for him. He's very gifted physically and mentally, uh, like, intellectually. So sometimes it is discouraging when I can't do it as easily as he can. But at the end of the day, I still did it. It might be a little bit harder for me. Or a lot harder. Or a lot harder, but I, I can still do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you've accomplished so, 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 so much in your life. It's like you lived like 10 different lives in your one lifetime. Can you share some of your proudest moments or accomplishments? Well, the books, I'm very proud of the books, especially our new one. The publishing company did a great job on it. They did, yeah. Uh, They really did. My editor did a great job. They took the ramblings of, and I'll go back to the very first question you asked me, a crazy person, (laughs) um, and turned it into very easy to read step by step instructions yeah it's great they did a great job so my books for sure living off the grid is an absolute thing i'm proud of and a big huge accomplishment the relief work on one side of it i see it as a big accomplishment um you helped a lot of people yeah i I, see and that's the thing is that a lot of these relief workers that go out there they don't go out there for recognition or anything yeah so i think we see it differently than everybody else sees it you know I think it's very glamorized and they put us up on a pedestal like, wow, you guys are amazing, you know? And I don't really see myself that way or they don't see themselves that way. So I'm not as proud of that stuff as other people may think I should be. On the other side of that, I saved a lot of people, but I also 
I was responsible for ending the lives of a lot of people too during the war and stuff. So that kind of cancels each other out. So yeah, I'm not as proud as I probably should be if I just had a clean slate going into relief work. Would you say that doing the relief work was sort of a redemption? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think most of my life since going to war has been trying to atone for the sins and trying to just to um, punish myself for um, for all the things that I did. And I think I'll punish myself for the rest of my life. Hmm. Um, I think we all do or, or will, at least most of us soldiers would yeah. will. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know that's a very, it's a very vulnerable thing to share on camera. So yeah. thank you. I, I really appreciate that. So again, thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, so that kind of catches us up to where we are at now. So Dan, you, you were sort of born and pushed into survival, living in the suburbs of Detroit, homicide capital of the world at the time. And then you left that situation and went to the mountains of Utah and had to survive out there. And then you joined the military and also had to survive out there. And then you gained a lot of, ex of experiences working for NASA. And then you left society for seven years. Then you return, going to Mexico, doing nonprofit work. And then you return to the U.S., started writing all your books, building a bunker, and running an animal sanctuary. So that's kind of where we're at now. Do you have anything for the future? Anything that we should be looking forward to? Um, yeah, we are, um, definitely more books. Um, I started my, my newest book, which was actually published before, um, Breaking the Grid. Yeah. So it seems like it was the second book, but it's actually my newest book. Mm -hmm. The End Survivors is a fictional approach to all of my knowledge and what I saw out there mm. um, put into a story format. So more of the end series. There may be or may not be a TV show in the works Ooh. that might actually be shot right here in the bunker. Is um, it end of the world? I can't say oh, anything no. about it, but no spoilers. Um, yeah, I no can't spoilers. like legally I can't say anything about it. Yeah. And then I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Yeah. Right. Of course, we're, we're accepting more animals all the time. Our family is really growing. And also we are in the middle of the beginning stages of building a commune here, an intentional community here where we can work together and live together and create together. So any like-minded people out there? Yeah, we'd love to hear everyone's stories. Yeah. You know, whether you're looking to join the yeah. commune or not, we just yeah. we just want to hear your stories. For sure. Know that there are other people who are trying to, you know, be more self-sufficient or people who have actually left society and came back. Yeah. If there's anybody that has ever done what I've done, please get a hold of me because I've never, I've done lectures in not most of the universities in the United States, seminars all over the world. And I've never met anybody, as far as I know, I'm all, the only person that has ever done what we did complete 100% cut off for as long as we did and come back to tell about it. I'm sure there's people that are oh, still doing yeah. it. Yeah, they're out there, they're still, out there still living off the grid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But in our generations, and maybe they did a lot in the hippies generation, the 70s and 60s, but in our generations, I haven't been able to meet somebody. And I'd love to like compare notes and 
yeah. and um and collab on something. Yeah, you you're know? the only person I know who has had that experience. I don't yeah. know anyone else. I know people who are like homesteaders, like I am. You know, mm -hmm. like grow their own. Yeah, they food grow their own food. Or and... off the grid, they have solar panels, yeah. but they go to work every day. Or yeah, day. yeah. Right, or they're still in contact with their family. Or yeah, they still run to the grocery store if they need to. You know, yeah. things like that. But yeah. I don't know anyone who's completely cut off from society. I would love yeah. to um, hook up with somebody that has done what we've done and compare notes and, and maybe work together on something. Yeah, absolutely. So that's our first episode of this podcast. I hope you guys it. enjoyed it. We did it. Oh, my goodness. Celebrate. Yay. Woo. I, I celebrate. It, it's a long, it was a long one, but yeah. it's just to mm. kind of get you guys, just introduce us to, to the audience, let you guys know a little bit about who we are, mostly about who Dan is because he has way more credibility than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can actually like see some of the work I've done and online and looking yeah. up and stuff. And yeah. Absolutely. I'm not just a lunatic rambling on a, on a podcast, even though I seem like I... Like a lot of people nowadays. <laughs> yeah. No offense. Yeah. People like me, who are literally in their mid-20s, who have no life experience, trying to give life experience to other people Advice, in their 20s. what they should do. And, and I'm just like, what? What's yeah. going on here? Um, anyways. I don't have any makeup tutorials for you, though. No, 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 no. First episode, thank you guys so much for thank tuning you. in. Um, Next episode we are going to dive into the day-to-day -day life that dan experienced while he was out there uh living off the grid the challenges he faced and some of the solutions that he came to while living off the grid where he went a whole bunch of things maybe a lot of things that you guys are probably wondering and questioning about we will try our best to dive into that sounds good yeah and and julia is the one that like t does all this like she handles the, the everything so i'm just finding out about this what our next episode is going to be also yeah uh, just like you are yeah so i'm looking forward to it yay. sounds good yay thank you guys thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode and we will see you guys next time